This Jacobin podcast is supported by the Left Book Club. It's a non-profit club with reading groups and events for a list of books that explore radical alternatives to capitalism. You can join the Left Book Club for just £6 a month. That's less than $8. You can also buy someone a gift membership. Listeners to this podcast can get their first month free by going to leftbookclub.com and using the code WINFREE with all letters capitalised. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Critics of Karl Marx claim that he was incapable of recognising forms of oppression that aren't linked to a narrow understanding of class. Kevin Anderson challenged that view in his book, Marx at the Margins, on nationalism, ethnicity and non-Western societies. Based on a careful reading of Marx's full body of work, it shows that Marx was far more attuned to questions of race and ethnicity than his critics would have you believe. Edward Said accused Karl Marx of expressing a Eurocentric and Orientalist perspective in his articles on the British conquest of India. Was that criticism justified in whole or in part? Uh, I think it's justified, but only in part. Edward Said made two charges. One is that uh, Marx expressed ethnocentric views and condescension toward uh, Asian societies and peoples. And the other is that Marx viewed the historical progress and, and uh, in terms of as emanating from Europe and shaking up Asia. Those are the two charges. We can see evidence for this criticism in the Communist Manifesto in 1848, where Marx and Engels write of a bourgeois colonialism goes into places in Asia that it batters down Chinese walls and forces these most barbarian nations to submit to civilization, this kind of language. Now, obviously, Marx is not even there of loving colonialism, but he's he's seeing it parallel to the way that the rising bourgeoisie in Europe toppled feudalism and, and that this opened possibilities for the working class and the popular masses. In 1853 in India, which is, the, which is where Said focuses his attack, the case is actually more uh, complicated because D- Marx does repeat some of these kinds of expressions about the backwardness of India, the progress being brought by British colonialism as he sees it. But he's also very critical of colonialism there at the same time. And he also, in the 1853 writers in India, seems to support the possibility of Indians struggling against colonialism to achieve their independence. And uh, this has been noted quite a bit in India that Marx may have been the first person located in Britain just to explicitly support Indian independence. But then by 1857-58, it shifts around quite a bit. There's no longer praise of the civilizing mission or whatever you want. He didn't use that exact phrase, but that type of notion of of colonialism. There's nothing of that because by 1856, the Chinese are invaded once again by the British in the second 
opium war, the Chinese resist both remnant parts of the state and also popular resistance. Marx and Engels support that very strongly. And also in 1857, the much more massive uh, Sepoy uprising in India that lasts two years, that really makes India ungovernable by the British for a good part of that time. And this is a movement that Marx and Engels uh, support, and they denounce the atrocities committed by the British, uh, including their racist language, using the N-word. Marx notes the British using the N-word to describe the people that, the, the British officers to describe the people there like hanging or shooting uh, the, the, the rebels. And then by the end of his life, in the 1870s and 80s, Marx actually suggests that places like Russia, which has a similar social structure to India in the sense that it's very rural and agrarian, that the peasant-based uprisings there could be the starting point for a wider global revolution. So actually, the it's almost shifted around 180 degrees from Communist Manifesto when the sole possibility of revolution seems to be emanating from Europe, now there's a possibility that it could actually start in Asia and uh, or Russia, Eastern Europe, that it, uh, it, it could start there and, and move into uh, Western Europe and the developed capitalist countries. How did Marx understand the political developments that were taking place in China during his own lifetime? Unlike India, China was never actually uh, colonized. China was called, uh, by later Marxists, uh, a semi-colony in the sense that the coastal areas and some of the major cities were occupied uh, to some extent, that there were European garrisons there and so on, but the state uh, maintained itself. Uh, and this was because of the tremendous resistance of the Chinese uh, society and also, of course, the size of the place. So, because my mentor, Rydon Kyle, once said uh, that while he really re- always, he never quite fell into the same degree of condescension toward the Chinese as toward the Indians, because the Chinese, uh, he respected the fact that the resistance was, at least in the periods he was observing it closely, seemed to be much more sustained and massive. And, and, and successful in, in, in some cases. But the other, the second thing he looks at in China, besides these uh, quasi-nationalist movements resisting uh, British colonialism, is the so-called Taiping Rebellion, which lasts from the 1840s into the 1860s. This is an internal rebellion against the Chinese ruling classes. And it, it's a peasant-based movement Initially, anyway, it, it's quite egalitarian, and particularly one, one particular feature that, of course, emerges very strongly in all later Chinese revolutionary movements is support for uh, women's emancipation from underneath the uh, some of the very harsh uh, restrictions that women were, were subjected to, according to the Confucian, uh, the whole Confucian uh, system. But over time, so he supports them, he writes about them, but uh, by the 1860s when they're collapsing, 
in the wake of an offensive by the government, with, with support, by the way, of, of colonial powers are supporting the government, although it's not really an anti-colonialist uprising as such. Uh, by this time, Marx notes that uh, they had chopped off a lot of heads, as he puts it, and uh, that they had really alienated their social base through the brutality with which the Taiping rebels uh, governed the areas that they took over, and that this this dried up their social base, and therefore they were defeated. Why was the cause of Polish independence a political touchstone for Marx, Engels, and indeed for their wider political milieu? Yeah, I mean, you have to realize that all three of these, China, India, Poland, I mean, I mean these are major issues that are constantly being discussed by everyone during Marx's lifetime. Poland is a particularly important case for the left because with, with only one major exception, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, all European socialists and people that were later called anarchists like Bakunin and liberals also for the most, supported Poland. This was a this went back to the 18th century when Poland was divided among three uh, neighboring countries. It was announced that Poland no longer existed. The larger part of it was taken over by Russia. The Poles never accepted that, and they're kept in one uprising uh, after another. And so Marx was very supportive of that, as were, were many, many others. And, uh, for example, just in Paris in 1848, there was a big workers' demonstration, and one of the chants was down with the bourgeoisie, and the other was long-lived Poland, because the cause of Poland was seen as bound up with uh, the European Revolution. So, like, for example, there were Polish officers fighting at the Paris Commune in 1871, because the Poles, through all their uprisings, and some of them were uprisings by military officers who then would flee into exile, the Poles uh, were just around as part of the revolutionary movement. There were Polish exiles almost uh, everywhere. Another thing about the Polish movement was that unlike India and China, the, the, the resistance to this kind of colonialism had a more of a political organization. It was organized on a modern, secular, nationalist, and democratic basis, and, and, and sometimes even on a... Uh, socialist basis there were there were a couple of polish activists who were very prominent in marx's uh, first international so here's a line from the communist manifesto on the well on the one hand he writes that the workers have no country but then later on they write in poland the communists support the party that works for an agrarian revolution as the prime condition for national liberation the party that brought the 1846 krakow insurrection to life. And there's another aspect here too, which is a negative aspect, which is Russia, the Russian Empire was overwhelmingly seen by all revolutionaries, whether democratic, liberal, or, or socialist, or virtually all as a negative, malevolent counter-revolutionary force, the prime counter-revolutionary force. Don't forget that it was the Russians who ultimately defeated the remnants of the French Revolution that uh, maintained themselves in the Napoleonic uh, era, that in 1830, when the revolution broke out again in Europe, 
the Russians were were willing to like march on Paris because the Russian Empire saw these revolutions in, in Europe as a threat in the sense that the outgrowth of it, Napoleon had actually invaded Russia. And so Poland was seen as an ally. And of course, part of Poland was inside the Russian Empire. The bigger part of it was. So Poland, the Polish people and their social movements were seen as an ally of the, uh, the revo- European Revolution. And Russia was just seen as a power that would do anything it could to crush revolution anywhere uh, in the world. And just as an example, I mean, in Marx's generation, which Marx actually lived through and participated in, the 1848-49 revolutions in Europe, where he participated actively in, in, in the German uh, wing of that, in, in, in the neighboring Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russians send in no less than 400,000 troops to defeat the, uh, the revolution in, uh, in Austria and, and Hungary. So Poland as kind of the anti-Russia, as well as Poland explicitly as the Polish national movement as something that uh, revolutionaries need to, uh, need to support. Expanding on that point about Russia's role in European politics, how did Marx perceive Russia in terms of its political regime and also its underlying social structures? And did that perception shift over time? It did shift. There are some also fairly notorious articles that Marx and Engels wrote in the uh, mainly in the early 1850s, late 1840s, about Russia in the sense that they describe the society as just like slave-like. They use this kind of language, not just the middle classes or the hangers-on of the regime, but the population as a whole. They talk about the Asian origins of the Russian monarchy, which had originated in part in the, uh, the Mongol state that had preceded it, that had, oc- part, that had occupied large swathes of Russia. So they, they see the, they talk about the Russian Empire as Asiatic, not European, all this kind of ethnocentric language. And so it's in this context that they're supporting Poland against Russia and so forth. And, and they see Russia as a danger to the uh, Western European Revolution. But they use these phrases like Asiatic barbarism sometimes uh, to describe the Russians. But by 1857, 58, oh, 58, 59, land reform comes onto the agenda in Russia. They have a slightly reformist czar, and uh, he begins to enact uh, breaking up of the big landed estates and parceling out that, that land. I mean, it's kind of a little bit sleazy the way they do it because the, uh, the peasants go right away into debt, and they don't really get full control of the land. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a significant thing. So this, some people may know this letter where, where Marx writes in praise of a John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry that, that helped touch off the Civil War. And there's a letter to Engels where he says the two great revolutionary things going on in the world today are the emancipation of the serfs in Russia and John Brown's attack on, on Harper's Ferry. And so by that period, there is internal unrest in inside Russia that they, they become aware of. And they, they talk about the, the looming peasant revolution in Russia and how, how uh, dramatic that's going to be. So this breaks them away 
from this earlier view that Russia was a monolithic society with a slave-like population. And of course, by the end of his life, Marx is writing the letters to Vera Zazulich, the, 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 the Russian revolutionary, and, and also he and Engels write a preface to the Communist Manifesto in 1882, which is Marx's last published writing, where they say that the Russian village, and of course Russia is still a almost entirely agrarian society, the Russian village, which has a, a very old a communistic system in the village in the sense that land, peasants don't, uh, occupy individual plots of land in per perpetuity, but that shifts around every few years when the village council meets and it's redistributed based on need. Like one family might have had more children, another other things might have happened, so they need less land, and so it, it's parceled out that way. And so this this Russian this what they call this primitive communism uh, of the Russian mir which is that's the Russian word for it, the village system, that maybe that could become the basis for a con communist transformation in Russia. And then in the manifesto, they say Russia and the world, because they say if a Russian revolution based in these villages could break out, maybe it could be the starting point for a wider re European revolution if it can link up with the uh, the socialist proletariat of Western Europe. So there we have uh, the mature statement by Marx and Engels, the, the more developed statement on Russia and its revolutionary potential, a country that has almost no working class yet. What was Marx's understanding of racism and slavery in the US and what arguments did he make about the Civil War? As with Poland, that was one of those causes that are virtually all European uh, socialists, Democrats, liberals uh, supported the North in the Civil War and really viewed it as the major conflict so far in the 19th century, you know, since the Napoleonic Wars. And so Marx, you know, he, he shifted around on some of these issues like uh, Russia or India but on slavery and race, it's very consistent from the very beginning. Already in 1846, two years before the Communist Manifesto, there, there's a letter which then the substance of it goes into one of Marx's first books, which is basically that colonialism uh, involves sl large slave plantations where cotton is grown and other agricultural resources and these are transported to uh, to Britain uh, where they're manufactured into cloth which seeds the industrial revolution and so without slavery no capitalism without colonialism without slavery no capitalism so he's already looking at he's looking at slavery in a negative light and he's also seeing it as uh, underpinning at least the uh, the development of capitalism by the time of the Civil War, I mean, there's there's things he writes from time to time on it, but by the time of the Civil War, uh, of course, they're siding with the North. He and Engels, they write a lot of letters and articles about this. They also are very, are, are very interested in, in the radicalization of the war and things like uh, the use of black troops by the North in the uh, 
dividing up the great slave plantations that what was called 40 acres and a mule in the U.S. at that time. They're putting forth and agreeing with those kinds of things. They're in touch with some of the left-wing abolitionists. In fact, their journalistic articles are appearing in the New York Tribune, which is an abolitionist newspaper, which does have some other socialists writing for it, too. And it's also the most largest, the most influential paper in the United States at that time. And then, of course, when Capital comes out in 1867, this is just uh, right after the Civil War. So there's the famous line to the effect that the working class cannot free itself where one part of it is in chains and that the overthrow of slavery in the United States proves this because it wasn't until the overthrow of slavery that uh, the first large, first national labor union, it was actually called the National Labor Union, was founded in the United States. And the actual sentence is, labor in a white skin cannot free itself where in a black skin it is branded. That, that's right in Capital Volume 1. That's a very well-known phrase. What's less well-known is the 1867 preface. This is right in the middle. Marx finishes Capital just as President Andrew Johnson is being tried for impeachment. And a lot of people think he's going to be impeached. And Marx seems to think so too. And so he quotes, or he refers to uh, Senator Benjamin Wade of Ohio, who would have assumed the presidency had Johnson been impeached. And Wade had, he refers to Wade's public speeches advocating redistribution of landed property. In the, in the reconstructed South, what we now call 40 acres and a mule, what was, of course, never achieved for the former slaves to give an economic foundation to the political emancipation that occurred as the, as the result of uh, the Civil War amendments to the Constitution and other, other processes. There's one last thing I want to mention on this, uh, which connects to Poland as well. There are European-wide networks that spring up to support the North in the Civil War because there's, there's talk in both France and Britain of, of possibility of intervening on the side of the South. The South is certainly very interested in that, sends ambassadors to England and France. And in fact, they install, Bonaparte installs Maximilian in Mexico in the middle of the Civil War, and that scene is possibly attempt to aid the South. And so workers and socialists, and then also Poland has an uprising in 1863, so these networks form in 1862-63-64 uh, involving Germany, Italy, Britain, and France, and the other uh, countries of Europe where they have socialist and labor movements. Those networks to support Poland and to support the North actually are the same networks that form the First International. So the First International is certainly founded on a labor and socialist basis, but it's founded specifically by people who were supportive of the Polish uprising of 1863 and the, uh, the northern side in, in the Civil War in the United States. And, of course, there was a class divide in Britain on this. The working classes were firmly against the war, uh, and against the war in the sense of, of the South. They supported the North. And they were against the idea of Britain intervening in the war. The liberal capitalists also supported the North, whereas the, uh, the landowning classes and the aristocracy tended to lean toward the South. 
And of course, those people still dominated the political structures of England to a great extent. So that was the fear that the working classes had and also the socialists had and really the United States had of a British intervention. Did Marx develop a general theory of the relationship between slavery and capitalism or between racism and capitalism? There's no essay where he addresses that those issues systematically. However, there are a lot of uh, comments and articles devoted to the Civil War. And these, of course, have been collected over the years in several different editions of the writings of Marx and Engels on the Civil War in the United States. So, so that's the place to look for those writings. There's plenty of indication in Marx's writings that, uh, I mean, opposition to slavery of any kind runs through all of his writings. I mean, he, he writes about, when he writes about ancient Greece and Rome, he, he talks about the horrors of the slavery system. And when he's tracing the development of society out of a more clan and tribal-based, more egalitarian systems into a modern class societies. Of course, slavery arrives at that time in the Mediterranean, and he's guards this as like a terrible, tragic event and so forth. But he regards the modern slavery of, of uh, the capitalist era as he actually says it, it's the worst form of slavery ever developed because, as he sees it, it combines the surveillance and organization of a capitalist production process with the brutality, all the age-old brutalities of whippings and beatings and tortures and burnings and all the things that they did to people's bodies under slavery probably since the beginning of the institution. But that combined with it, with the intensive capitalist uh, work processes. So he's certainly aware that, for example, what scholars are talking about a lot today, which is that these sugar plantations in um, Louisiana were, I mean, they were doing a lot of sugar refining too. And this was an industrial process. I don't know how many people realize that the McCormick's Reaper was, I think, initially used in the South not in the north. So some of these inventions, like the cotton gin, the reaper, these are, now, he doesn't write specifically about this, but there's indications that he thinks along these lines that the modern slavery is is the most brutal and the most oppressive when you look at it as a whole. It's also not, it's not a great, the Roman aristocrats used to pride themselves on manumitting a lot of their slaves in their wills, but that was less, com- far less common in the mo- in the uh, capitalistic slavery, uh, where they would will the slaves to their uh, the enslaved people to their heirs. And as far as race and class, there's a lot of discussion of uh, I mentioned that one before about white labor in America really is not going to be able to organize effective trade unions until slavery is abolished. There's discussion of the possibility of poor whites and formerly enslaved blacks uniting in the post-Civil War South. And of course, one of the places this kind of thing comes up more explicitly and maybe with a little more rounded out theorization is in his writings on Ireland, where he 
he looks at also the Irish inside Britain. He compares the situation of the Irish in Britain to uh, the racial domination that black workers experience in the United States. And he talks about the divisions between the British, the English and the Irish workers inside Britain as something that is uh, holding back the possibility of revolution. And until that's resolved, it's gonna be very difficult to have a strong workers movement in Britain. And he, he says at several occasions, he says similar to the poor whites in the South, these English workers look down on the Irish and refuse to unite with them. And this strengthens the hand of the ruling classes and weakens the power of labor in, in, in Britain. Picking up on that comparison with the Irish situation, how important was Ireland and the Irish national movement in the development of Marxist political thinking? Well, it was very important. Again, as with slavery, as with Poland, there's no, with the India or China, we can say, well, there's an, or Russia, we can say there's an earlier period when they weren't, Marx and Engels were not supportive of all anti-colonial movements and so forth. But in the case of Ireland, again, from, from day one, they're very supportive of the Irish. They're Irish leaders. The Chartist movement, which is the large labor movement that exists in their youth in the 1830s and 40s, and is pretty well crushed by the end of the 1840s, it has uh, Irish workers in its leadership, which the British workers movement didn't have that for quite a while later again. So they saw that there are Irish people involved in the founding of the First International, that they're there, they're in the room. The First International supports independence for Ireland. This is a little more of a struggle because the First International is preponderantly a British group in terms at least of its leadership. And so Marx makes the argument with the aid of socialists from Germany and France and other places to the British workers. He says, you, you always go to the Poland demonstrations. You've got to be consistent and overcome your prejudices and support the Irish independence too. And they win those votes and they, uh, they get support statements voted by the First International against the execution of Irish political prisoners in, in one case where they had actually committed a, a violent, uh, in a violent incident where they tried to uh, storm the, one of the prisons and release people. And Marx and his allies got the biggest British trade unions of the time to go on record saying, we oppose the execution of these people who had killed police officers. So it shows, I think, two sides of it, that the British workers had their prejudices, but also under certain conditions. And, uh, you know, with the push from Marx and some of the other revolutionaries from around Europe and inside Britain, that they could be moved in a radical direction. There was also the agrarian movement inside Ireland, which went through various phases. Unlike Poland, there was much more influence of the Catholic Church in the Irish national movement at that time. And this gave it a conservative tinge, not only in rejecting socialism, which was, they would always say it's identified with atheism and so forth, but, but, but also because there were our Irish as well as British landowners in Ireland. The church-backed nationalism 
was for political independence or autonomy, but not for uh, agrarian revolution. By the late 1860s, the Fenian movement arises, which is a, a more plebeian movement. And while it's not socialist, it has it stands for an agrarian revolution against the landlord classes, as well as against British, uh, both kind of equally against that and against British colonialism. And it was the Fenians who attacked that prison. And so Marx and, and Engels also, it was Engels writes some, a lot about Ireland too. Many of these topics that we've talked about, Engels writes the most about Ireland. I mean, I don't know if it's more than Marx and numbers of pages, but they both write a lot. But there's there's the famous letter to Marx scholars around 1870, where, where Marx writes that I've changed my mind on Ireland. I now believe that Ireland has to win its independence first, and only after that is the conscience of the British workers going to be shaken up enough that they'll be able to unite with the Irish immigrant working class inside Britain. And then you get this really interesting text called the Confidential Communication, which was exactly that. It was a private communication uh, within the First International. And uh, part of it talks about, well, it kind of goes like this, that uh, the European Revolution will probably start in France, as so many revolutions often have. But the other thing that's going to give it a stronger position is that Unrest is brewing in Ireland. Ireland is colonized by Britain. A lot of the British ruling classes have landed estates there. That's the aristocracy. That's the most reactionary class. That's the class whose children form the uh, officer corps of the military. An uprising in Ireland is going to dis distract and weaken them. It's also going to change the conscience of the British workers, of the English workers. They're going to see... It's going to be much harder for them to view the Irish in a condescending light because their prejudice against the Irish is, you know, these are docile people who are willing to work for lower wages than we are and therefore undercutting the conditions of the rest of the working class. When they see the Irish rising up, it's going to change their consciousness and it's going to help to mobilize the British working classes. So we have here a sketch of a European-wide revolution which uh, begins in France, ferments among the Irish peasants and their anti-colonial uprising, and then reaches its climax inside Britain, the largest, by far the, the most industrially developed uh, country with, with the largest working class. We're talking about 1870, when the rest of Europe had just begun to industrialize. Did Marx generalize from the positions that he adopted in relation to Poland or Ireland and go on to formulate a wider theory of nationalism? No, there's no wider theory of nationalism that he ever like elaborates in any kind of a essay. But you have to realize that a lot of the concepts we associate with Marx have been systematized by people that, that wrote later. Like, I know a lot of people emphasize that Marx talked about the slave Greco-Roman mode of production, the feudal mode of production, and the capitalist mode of production. He did. But his discussions of feudalism and the ancient Greco-Roman modes of production are 
paragraphs here and there in various essays. There's no essay that Marx ever wrote on the fuel motor production either. Well, what I can say is that these national and anti-colonial uh, movements and revolutions were very, very important, not only for Marx, but his whole generation. And one way of understanding that is to look at the uh, one of his essays, the inaugural address to the First International, which was 1864. And he it's about a 20-page text, I believe. He touches on the working class and the class struggle, but he touches on every one of these issues we've talked about because he basically says the working class has to have a foreign policy. We can't allow ourselves to be dragged into a war in North America. We have to support Poland. He even has a sentence about the Chechens who were fighting an uprising in the Caucasus at that time, yet again, against Russia. The Poles, the Irish, all these issues are covered uh, in the inaugural address of the First International, which is, of course, voted as a text of the, uh, something that, that, that is a statement of the entire group. So, no, there isn't a systematic, I would say those, those letters on Ireland around 1869-70 offer the most uh, fleshed out theorization of nationalism and uh, socialist revolution. As he was writing and revising Capital, did Marx expect the British form of capitalist development to be repeated in the rest of Europe and the wider world? Uh, this is a very interesting question. There's that pretty famous sentence in the preface to Volume 1 of Capital of 1867, and I think this is an exact quote. The industrially developed country shows to the less developed, the image of its own future. And uh, he's been talking about British capitalism in the sentences before that. So this has lent itself, this and other statements that one can find, a lot of them earlier than capital in the Communist Manifesto in places like that, in that period, to suggest that, yeah, British development was going to be, it's simply the first capitalist country, the rest of the world is going to be going through this, so Britain is kind of in the first car of a, of a train that's going along the track, and, and India and China are probably, and Africa are probably towards the rear. But by the 1860s and definitely 1870s, Marx is starting to question this kind of thing more than ever. So that sentence I guess quoted, the industrially more developed country shows to the less developed the image of its own future, he actually adds a line, which is for those countries that have begun to climb the ladder of capitalist development. So, yes, it's true that the world will follow largely the model of British capitalism once it starts to become capitalist. So Germany, France... The Netherlands, these were countries that were well on their way toward industrialization by 1870. They're going to be forced to follow the model that Britain developed because it's the capitalist model. Uh, once it gets going, it tends to be dominant. However, that leaves a big part of the world outside. And, uh, and there's another place where he says, 
all the countries of Western Europe are going through this development. That's in the chapter on primitive accumulation, and that's added to the French edition. Both of these are added to the French edition of capital. So India, Russia, China, really the whole rest of the world, he gets very interested at the end of his life in the ways in which these societies have clung to what he was calling primitive communism in the villages, in many of these societies. And he wrote about Russia, as we know, that this could maybe be the basis of a, common, of a modern communist development if it could link up with the wider struggle of the working classes. So we know for sure in Russia that Marx had strong links to what was called the left, left wing, what was called the populist movement, which did advocate such a peasant-based revolution and a socialist transformation that would avoid uh, going through capitalism. And Marx, of course, adds on to that always that if it can link up with the working class movement in the West, because he doesn't want a low, he doesn't support a low tech, industrially undeveloped socialism. He's not saying it's preserved the rural society in its present form, but its communistic or organization could be the basis for a modern non-capitalist uh, or a non-capitalist modernity is what he seems to be saying. So we find this coming out, and people say sometimes, oh, those only, it's only those letters to Vera Zazulich where he says it. It's not true. It's in the, his last published writing, the uh, preface to the communist 1882 Russian edition of Communist Manifesto, which he and Engels co-author, which was published in Russian, but also in German, and the German socialists, and therefore the European socialists were aware of it, but it was pretty well forgotten. And socialism went on a different uh, pathway than that le initially less anti-colonialist and definitely uh, unilinear in the sense of thinking that, tending to think that all societies had to go through uh, capitalist development. And that's where we get the famous or infamous two-stage theory of history that you first need the bourgeois and capitalist transformation and only later on can you have the socialist transformation. And this is, of course, what the Chinese, this is how the Chinese rulers manage to say they're building socialism because they say, well, we have to go through this phase of a bourgeois capitalist. And then later, only once we consolidate that, can we go on to uh, socialism. This obviously has no basis in uh, anything that Marx wrote. Many thanks to Kevin Anderson for that introduction to a neglected side of Karl Marx. You can read a lot more about these questions in his book, Marx at the Margins. Long Reads is supported by Pluto Press. Pluto have developed a new list of audiobooks for some of their most popular titles. One book that's now available is Mad World, The Politics of Mental Health by Misha Fraser-Carroll. Fraser-Carroll shows that mental health is a political issue by exploring the history of asylums, psychiatry and alternative models of care. You can order Mad World now by going to tiny.one slash jacobin.